0: Welcome to Access Utah, this is Sherry Quinn. Today on the program, we continue our coverage of the oil and gas boom in the Uinta Basin. This week we are focusing on Vernal, Utah. Where an article in the magazine, One Earth, hones in on the city's affair with oil and gas.
1: My name is David Gessner. I found myself living in North Carolina, though I am from Massachusetts. And it's it's been about seven years out west. and. I teach creative nonfiction here and write books, basically.
0: Gesner joins us to discuss his article called How Vernal Utah Learned to Love Big Oil, published in March 2013, which starts out with a quote from National Geographic in the first few paragraphs.
1: 1918, National Geographic stole the area's potential. Campers and hunters in building fires against pieces of rock have been surprised to find that they ignited that they contain oil. This was the beginning of the idea that, hey, this is a pretty good place to get fuel. A lot of old dinosaur bones uh, equals lots of good fuel.
0: (laughs) Next, Gesner describes how he got to Vernal.
1: Well, honestly, I was out west last summer doing a book about following Ed Abbey and Wallace Stegner's ghosts around the west, and the book is going to do three things. It's going to have biographies of those two men and kind of my travels, some of them with my daughter, who's nine, and also a kind of environmental state of the West. And one of my first stops was up in Peonia, at High Country News, the great newspaper there. And I seem to always go there first when I do anything about the West and talk to the interns there. And I told them my idea, which was to find a town that had been wooed by big oil and uh, look into the kind of things that make big oil attractive to towns. I mean, the bottom line is the thing is money, but uh, the specific things that, that are used to kind of woo a town, and then kind of look at the history of how it had been, a uh, history of booms and busts. And one of the women who's an editor there said, oh, you've got to go to Vernal. Um, and the first thing, of course, she told me about was the I Heart Drilling Uh, signs outside of George Burnett's store and you know I laughed like everybody does at at first and and then she described it some more and I thought this is perfect it's not too big or too small a town and uh, it just so happened that I knew that I could um, hook up with EcoFlight up there so everything kind of just uh, dovetailed and, and I and I pointed my car up to Vernal, Utah next.
0: What was it really like when you first got there?
1: I think I say in the article, my working method in the last few years has been the first line of a joke, a man walks into a bar. And when I went down and covered the gulf, I didn't do it really as a reporter, so much as somebody who just went down there and threw themselves into things. And the book I wrote about it, which is called The Tarball Chronicles, has, if it works, a kind of Alice in Wonderland sort of feel where you know, outsider comes in and just falls down the hole into this weird world of, of oil and executives and everything else. Um so I had the, the kind of a plan to do the same thing in Vernal, which is to say I had no plan at all. And <laughs> I drove there. And uh the first thing I noticed coming in is that I'd never seen more big white pickup trucks before in my life and I, I kinda played a little game where I counted oil tankers versus white pickups as I was driving in. And uh, pickups won substantially. You know, it was, a, it was a landslide victory. And I got into town and I went to about five hotels and couldn't find a room, which was the first indication that something was a little different than in other places. And I finally got a room. And as I say in the piece, it was a supposedly a non-smoking room that reeked of smoke. And there was a big rowdy uh, kind of social hour going on in, on the rooms on either side of me. And I was like, huh, I'm in a different place here. And it was the first indication that I, you know, I've, of the, the boom in Boomtown, as far as being in Vernal. And I, I wandered over to the Dinosaur brew House, uh that first night, and it was kind of a rowdy scene that night, unlike when I went back this winter. And it was really interesting. I, I got about every viewpoint on Fracking you could possibly get within two hours of sitting there sipping beer,
0: Gesner could not help but write about community events sponsored by the oil companies
1: i didn't get to any of the events, but it was just kind of funny to have all these all these events let's see yeah there was petroleum days uh, that's a golf tournament, and then there was a you know the weekend long country explosion uh, that was sponsored by a make a local maker of centrifuges and mud gas separators. And you know, and then I went over to the local tech college, which looked—I mean—looked I mean, looked like it had an uh, endowment similar to Harvard's. I mean, it was this beautiful, streamlined place, and uh, and there were little dioramas of oil derricks in the lobby. And and then the next stop was at the rec center, which looked like—I mean, I—I I lived in Boulder, Colorado, for six years, and I never saw a rec center like that. So it <laughs> <that> was like. <laughs> It wasn't a great mystery to be where the money was coming from, but there was clearly money funneling into town. And I I don't say that as an evil thing in any way. I'd rather have the town get some of it than have it all shipped back to Houston. (laughs) But, I mean, it was interesting to be in this pretty rural place and have it have the perks that were clearly from its relationship with, with oil and gas. Due to
0: the oil boom, the unemployment rate in Vernal is the lowest in the state, 3.9%.
1: I guess it's a question of, um, too, what, what kind of job you want, but, uh, but certainly the service industry booms because it's serving the oil workers. And if, if you are an able-bodied person, you, you, know, you have a chance to get a job in the oil fields themselves. So, yeah, the unemployment's very low.
0: One of the main sources in his article is Vernal resident Herm Hoops, who left a lasting impression.
1: In preparation for our interview, I opened the magazine and plopped it down on my desk here. And there he is uh, with his big white beard and big smile uh, in his house right outside of of Vernal, where he's been since the 70s. So he's really seen a few cycles of boom and bust. And he is a kind of a local rafting legend. Uh, He repairs boats now. Uh, but he gets out on, on the green still all the time and he's guided and, you know, he was, uh, one of the first things he said to me, I, I, I met him because when I went to that bar that summer and talked to people around town, everybody said, Oh, you've got to talk to Herm Hoops. You've got to talk to Herm Hoops. And he wasn't around. And so I came back and, uh, and I called him up and he was invited me over and I, I sat, um, in his living room, and, and, and it was it was amazing. He just kind of opened up about the, the history of the town, and one of the first things he said was, I am not saying that there should be no oil and gas exploration, but I am saying that um, we're proceeding incautiously, and there are these rivers here, and there's this ecosystem, and we have to proceed sensibly. And then he said, you know, I was here during earlier booms. When I first got here in the 70s, he said, there were cottonwoods lining the road, and it was this rustic place, and the river was, and the dinosaur quarry were the main attractions. And he watched a boom fairly soon after that. And then he watched a bust where people's belongings were being auctioned off from storage lockers. And uh, you know, and, and people were, were really experiencing the misery of having having had something and having taken it away, having had it taken away. So he seemed to have a long-term perspective. You know, I try to be really open-minded in the article, but of course, the honest truth is I have an environmental bias, which is a kind of long-term bias, which he probably shares. But uh, he also had a kind of understanding that, you know, if you're a high school kid who can suddenly make... you might be dropping out of high school and running out to the oil fields. So I, I admired that. But you know, in the end, what I came back to is Bernard DeVoto, who wrote brilliantly in the 40s and 50s about the West and was really Wallace Stegner's mentor. I quoted him as saying, all mining exhausts the deposit. And in the end, that's the truth. I mean, mining of any sort, whether it's silver or gas or oil or, uh, you know, wh- whether it's fracking or drilling, uh, its purpose is to take something out, you know, leave the land behind. And so we're kind of telling us a st- ourselves a story right now that this is different, that this is a new kind of, of mining. We've got a new science, a new technology, which we do, and actually Anadarko, the the Natural Resources Defense Council has made a point of saying they're really following some good safety measures. But when I hear people saying this is new, this is different, this is a new time, I, you know, I think historically, and think how many times we've heard something like that. And, and how many times the cycle of boom and bust has run through and out the other side again.
0: And this one is affecting almost the entire country.
1: We have a Republican supermajority here. And Considering fracking in the mountains and offshore drilling off our shores, so yes, it is. It's all over. I just think that we, you know, we get in these emergency modes and we say, "Okay, just for now." Or you know, one of my least favorite lines that I've heard so much lately, because I'm covering the coastal issues out here too, and in the wake of Sandy, is I hear people say, "By 2,100, the sea levels will rise seven feet." As if, and they give that as the cutoff time, as if that's the end of time right there. <laughs> as if, you know, as if as if life doesn't go on in 2101, when my daughter's daughter will be 40, basically. And, you know, I'm just imagining ahead. I mean, it's not like suddenly life cuts off. And if we just keep coring out and going into every open space, I mean, you just, and then you get to a different place in the future or you've already kind of habituated to this lesser land, and you say, oh, we're just going to do that one more. We're going to do that national park. And, and it just keeps going and going. And, it, and, and anybody who objects is kind of uh, airy and theoretical and not practical. But it is practical to say no.
0: Do you have an opinion about the fracking frenzy that you're willing to share?
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like it should be done with the utmost caution particularly around water, and there is an underground water, because as I quoted the guy in the bar saying, I had just had a beer with somebody who went on and on about the joys of fracking, and I nodded and said, okay. And then a geologist said, well, just ask him one question. What if there's an earthquake? I don't know if he was being hypothetical or not, but the gist of it was, what if there's an accident? It's like we're always told that things are safe, And then when they aren't, we're told, well, it was just an accident. But accidents always happen. I think we have to put on the brakes a little and imagine the consequences of that land. I mean, one really vivid moment for me was flying over the green and having the pilot and the others point out where the put-in was for the rafting. And right on the opposite bank, you could see new drill pads. And if there's no place to go in that corner of Utah where you feel like you're out on your own, that's that's a really scary, scary prospect. So yeah, I mean, in the end, I mean, I try to cut people breaks and say, you've got to make a living. But in the end, it's very scary for me to see what Stegner called the geography of hope being fracked with the intensity and density with which it is, and which I saw from the sky flying over it.
0: What was your impression of the landscape there? How much did you like it?
1: I'm kind of a cliche in a way. Uh, I could be in a John Denver song. I suffered from testicular cancer uh, when I was 29, and I was living in Worcester, Massachusetts, which is really quite the opposite of of the West. (laughs) You know, it's about as urban as you can get. And I had grown up in Worcester, and I'd found myself back there through a series of mishaps, really. And I was 29 and I was sick. And then kind of, I guess in literature, you call it a deus ex machina, when an accident transforms the plot. Well, my plot was transformed when I didn't get into any graduate schools in creative writing except one, and it was in Boulder, Colorado. And there I was going from Worcester, Mass, to Boulder, Colorado. I actually lived in El Dorado Springs. And if ever there was kind of an American cliche of rebirth, you know, I got, gradually got strong again. And one of the first things I did was uh, head out to Utah and start to explore. And it was, uh, you know, I think it is just it's just an unbelievable thing to have have that landscape as as part of all Americans' heritage. And I understand how local people feel. This is mine. But the reason the, the national parks were created and all the, the national land is it's all of ours, too. And it's thrilling to have it there. And it's, that's the reason I was there doing the pieces, because that land speaks to me. To see all those roads in a roadless wilderness <laughs> kind of spider webbing all over was, was really a, a painful moment for me. And I, by seeing them, I mean when I was up in the airplane above them to look down. Uh, so, yeah, I feel a great connection to that landscape. It's only through the accident of economics that I happen to be living in coastal North Carolina. <laughs> if I were younger, I'd be a, a ski and hiking bum out there. So.
0: <laughs> the oil and gas industry boom has also sparked scientific studies currently underway in the area to understand why ozone rises so high and so often in winter in the sparsely populated basin.
1: The ozone is supposed to be as bad as LA's now and I mean it's amazing for such a sparsely populated place that the, that the pollution's as bad as it is. So that's uh, a worry and another worry is trucking all of it through the mountains to Salt Lake. If you drive from Salt Lake City to Vernal, you, you mostly pass huge trucks barreling down the road.
0: Lastly, Gisner wants to emphasize the importance of making connections.
1: Not on purpose, but I found myself in the middle of the BP oil spill, in the middle of fracking out there, and then um, over the last eight years I've really studied sea level rise and the increasing intensity of storms. And, of course, that has been a popular topic since Sandy. And I'm just blown away by how things connect, And I don't think it takes a genius to see those connections. But there was a great quote. Uh, I can never remember who said it, but it was making connections is the work of the mature naturalist. And I think that it's a time when we all can make these connections, and, and we have to make them and then think about our actions. I mean, when I drove out this summer, and I emphasize drove out because I'm a hypocrite too. You know, I was guzzling my gas as I, I headed out west. I was driving through crisp cornfields in the drought of the Midwest. I was driving into a west that was raging with fires. And from what I hear, maybe it's changed recently, but the snowpack is light again, which, as Devoto said, good winters make bad summers. Uh, so I, I just think it's a it's a time to listen to the people who are making the connections. It's a time to listen to our scientists. And it's a time to listen to our thinkers, because you couldn't have more evidence than is being presented to us by way of storms and drought and fires. And so it's happening. It's not like some future event. It's right here. And I think we should listen to those who study these things and who, who know about them.
0: Sherry Quinn, Access, Utah.
2: Said it, let's go, if you said I'm sick of this place, I would listen to you, I wouldn't hesitate. Support for Access
3: Utah comes from the Utah Humanities Council, enriching cultural, intellectual, and civic life by providing opportunities for all Utahns to explore life's most engaging questions and the wonders of the human experience.
4: Did you know that preschool children already have an intuitive number sense that relates to their later performance in school math? Research suggests that ways to improve this early number sense may include having children play multi-sensory computer games. This type of play may eventually help boost early math education in the U.S. Did You Know That is made possible by the
3: USU Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at
4: cehs.usu.edu. Support for science questions comes from the College of Science at Utah State University, where graduates' acceptance rates to medical, dental, and graduate schools exceed national averages. When students and faculty learn together, discovery follows. Information is at usu.edu
0: science. Engineer Dr. Ed Galindo is creating a new kind of astronaut. Instead of the usual, suiting up humans in spacesuits inside a capsule for travel to the moon, Mars, and beyond, Galindo is training fish knots, rainbow trout specifically for spaceflight.
2: The idea of fish knots was to answer a couple questions. One is how could we get fish off this planet to either the International Space Station, the moon, or I've been looking at Mars. And so, We were looking at designing some experiments that would help answer that question. But perhaps we should talk about another idea. Why would we want fish off this planet to begin with?
0: Welcome to Science Questions. I'm
3: Sherry Quinn. And I am Susie Montgomery. Ed Galindo, a former employee of NASA, thinks up projects that most of us would never dream of. And he often does it with young people from his tribe. You might remember him on our show when he talked about how he and Idaho-Shoshone-Bannock High School students entered a college-level competition and submitted their science experiment to NASA. They won, and as the prize, they got to experience NASA's Vomit Comet that typically trains astronauts for spaceflight. Ed also worked with a team of youth who lugged big refrigerators down to remote rivers, and there they developed streamside salmon hatcheries out of these old refrigerators. It turned out that the salmon hatch rate, over 80%, far surpassed the federal salmon hatcheries that were made out of artificial streams. And lastly, Ed Galindo is especially infamous for another science project he developed with Shoshone-Bannock Youth, again, where they engineered a way for astronauts on the International Space Station to use their urine to make paint and then do art projects in space. Turns out activities like painting pictures in outer space helps keep astronauts from getting too bored.
2: I, I've done a lot of fun stuff, like fun with urine. Don't get me started there. So now we're, having yeah, fun, now we're having fun with trout, you know, fun with eggs. But it's fun with learning. That's the whole thing about this. Learning about STEM, learning about science technology and engineering and math is really a fun thing. If it wasn't so much fun, I wouldn't do it.
0: This time, I caught up with Ed Galindo right after he returned from a trip to Washington, D.C., where he had joined a committee appointed by President Obama to review Barry Goldwater scholarships. Each academic year nearly 300 college sophomores and juniors nationwide are awarded up to $7,500 for their STEM education pursuits.
3: Galindo hopes it will help unite STEM efforts across the country.
2: Imagine a forest fire, and so you have a big front on a a fire, there's that, that way of thinking, but STEM education that succeeding isn't like that yet. It's like small pockets of little community family fires that are working. We haven't came together to make a whole big forest fire of learning yet, I don't think. We have pockets of greatness, but we need to pull together to even do more. And that's what some of this committee meeting's about, is is how to pull these small fires together so we can light up even more imaginations with STEM.
0: Galindo describes himself as round and brown, full of curiosity for life and learning, and finds humor in most things on this planet including himself. He is a member of the Yaqui tribe of Arizona and is a faculty member at the University of Idaho and Utah State University in physics. While serving as chairman of the science department on the Shoshone-Bannock Indian Reservation, he was twice elected as the National Indian Teacher of the Year.
2: I mean, I'm interested in all these things. That's probably my biggest downfall as a human on this planet. I'm interested in so many things. My main reason for being here at the University of Idaho is a program I, I've called in and helped develop called ISTEM, Indigenous STEM. So it's a big I, and then STEM. And the I stands for Indigenous. That program is designed to get more Native Americans their PhDs and Masters in STEM fields. And so I have six now Native students that are either PhD or Master students in STEM and what I want to do with that program is extend that to a national level.
0: In the meantime, Glinda was working on fish knots with 31 University of Idaho undergraduates. Students enrolled in near-space engineering and spent months building equipment to launch unborn fish toward the stratosphere.
2: With our rocket program being down right now, with the shuttle program ending, we didn't really have a good vehicle to test this out, but we do have a way of getting fish to near space, and that's with high-amplitude balloons, and that's what this you know, engineer class is that I am help co-teaching is about. It's a research class where students design capsules and build instruments through the College of Engineering and, and fly them to the edge of space or near space, or a little bit over 100,000 feet, or about 17 to, to 20 miles up in the air. Uh, and then the balloon bursts, and it and the capsule comes back down via a parachute and so that 's what we decided to do with fish knots again fish knots the term comes from astronauts when these are fish knots, and we'd give them a ride, and we hope it was okay with them, and that they would we would recapture them back from their ride and see if they would grow so we tried that last year for the very first time. And we was ready, and it was in May of last year, and we launched Fish Knots up, and uh, three weeks later I found the capsule. So it was it was a total disaster. We had lost our capsule. We went off course about 120 miles, and and all the fish had had perished unfortunately after three weeks. That's easy to understand because it was only supposed to be a two-hour flight. And if you and I was to try to hold our breath for th- for three weeks, we wouldn't fare as well as those fish knots did either. Okay. So we felt bad, but we learned about flight. And that's what we do with, with space-type research, anyways. we learn when things don't go right so we can prepare. So that was last May. This fall, when the class came together, we reviewed our notes and seen what we did uh, not so right and what we could do better, and we launched this fall. This time, we had really good success rate out of fifty fish knots that went up only two didn't did didn't survive after a, uh, a 24-hour return back to our lab and then with our controls we had 50 that just sat on our lab bench they didn't fly either and they we lost three of those and so we felt well we can we can handle it pretty well there and then the fish developed and kept on doing pretty well so we felt pretty good about that, and so now we're going to repeat that experiment and we're going to fly another bunch of fish up with the idea of seeing if we can repeat those same results of how we can handle fish and get them off our planet and bring them back with the idea of let's understand that first. It seems like a simple process, but it's really hard to do. Building a capsule that the fish can survive in and the extremes, Sherry, at about 100,000 feet, it's about a minus 60 to minus 70 degrees outside the capsule and the atmospheric pressure is really low. We're trying to see how this biological payload can survive in those extremes, and we've had some really good luck so far.
0: They designed a system, something like a coffee thermos, equipped with oxygen tubes and a gimbal.
2: It's a system that will rotate, and it will keep stuff upright, no matter what axis it's in. So even if the capsule is tumbling upside down, it will rotate and keep things upright, and that's what a gimbal does. But it's kind of heavy, and this balloon has certain weight requirements. So we wanted to wonder if we could do something simpler because the gimbal system with the thermos worked really well on our second flight, and we had good success. So this flight, we decided to use waterproof bags. And so imagine, if you will, uh, you're you're floating down a river, and you don't want to get your cell phone wet. You put them in these waterproof bags, and that's what we're using to fly these fish in. And we we found that we can put these eggs full of water in these bags, about 500 milliliters of water in a bag, and the eggs fit well in there. And we can put multiple bags in the same capsule. So where before, because of weight uh, restrictions, we could only fly 50 eggs in a thermos. Now we can fly 150 eggs in three bags. So then you may ask this question, well, gee whiz, aren't, aren't they going to freeze? Because the thermos could protect them from extreme cold. Well, inside the capsule, which they designed, is not minus 60. It gets down to about 20 degrees Fahrenheit. But what the students designed is wrapping protection around these bags full of water, and the, and the water holds its thermodynamics pretty well. And so they built a chamber. We have a chamber on, on campus, and then we put dry ice, and we can drop the temperature way down to simulate flight. And after two hours of flight, the bags did not freeze, and the temperature only fell about five to six degrees with the design that the students made internally. So, that's what they're flying in now are waterproof bags and we can do multiple groups that way at less weight. So with that much volume of water, the pressure is going to going to not be that noticeable in the bags. Now if we were in a vacuum of space with no pressure at all, then that would be a different idea because pressure needs to equalize. That's what happens to this big balloon once we once we inflate it. At about eight feet diameter. Once it gets to 100,000 feet, it's it's about 40 feet diameter, or at least 20 plus. Depends on the on the material, and it bursts because pressure is trying to equalize itself. Water has these special qualities where, in that volume of water, and in those standard pressure. Where we're at even even at that extreme environment we're still in the environment, and there's a little bit of a pressure, like there would be you know on Mount Everest times times two on top of that thing where we 're going, but still there's still enough pressure in there where it's not it's not going to burst out because there's still pressure on our planet, so water's a great thing to work with that way.
0: The tiny fish knots are barely developed before their eyes when they depart on their journey
2: so you have these two little eyeballs looking at you for each egg that we deal with.
0: They will be launched in a thick-skinned weather balloon out of Bend, Washington, and should reach an altitude of about 100,000 feet, or 17 to 20 miles up.
2: So as a gee whiz figure here, most commercial altitudes, most commercial flights, fly between 30 and 40,000 feet. So, you know, we're going way higher than that, almost double, almost triple that, that height. The whole flight from beginning to end takes about two and a half hours. Once we recover them, we'll be able to put them in the lab and we'll know within 24 hours how many survived the initial flight or not. And we're asking, uh, could they be developed and, and could they reproduce? Because two things kind of knocked us out of the picture on a real NASA journey to the moon. One share is if we can't find water on the moon, which which we think we can, but if we can't find water on the moon or Mars, then our fish aren't going to have a hard time to surviving. And two, if they don't reproduce and make other fish, then then they're not going to help a, a crew out very much either. And so that's the other series of questions we want to ask. Will they reproduce? Are there any type of effects, like perhaps radiation, that may affect how they develop? We're not sure about that. I know there's some other questions we'll ask as we go through this whole process.
0: The most important result from the project, says Galindo, is education.
2: This is all about that. It's about science, technology, engineering, and math. And the students make everything. They're, they're not, you know, other than the thermos that we bought to put them in, but they make everything else, the gimbal, the capsule, the instruments to to measure it, the, the program to run the the things that we need to do uh, is all done by students. So there's a whole lot of education going on, hands-on STEM education, going on right there then then we're bringing together teams teams of people because engineers are good with engineering but some of them aren't good about fish physiology but fish people are so we have fish people on board we have biology people on board this experiment we have engineers on board and hang on to your hasher because you are not wearing one we have art people involved on board these capsules we take pictures and the The landscape of the earth looks so magnificent at 100,000, 80,000, 50,000 feet. And I found out the only people that were were seeing this is the people in our class. So we decided to bring some uh, art students in so that they could help share the excitement about art and engineering and get that out to the public. And we had phenomenal success with that. We had our first art and engineering show. We decided to, to offer these prints for sale to the public with all the money going back to the class.
0: Fish knots are not only about STEM education or fish food; they can be pets too.
2: Humans need human things to become attached to. We found out, and the Russians, we learned this in some of their writings about you're in a you're in the darkness of space with the clanking of a of a, of a mechanical environment going on all the time, and you need you need the uh, I don't know. It's a weird way of saying it, but the the warmth of a plant or knowing that someone else is alive is you it's kind of gruesome because you're going to eat it, but still, nonetheless, it, it ties you to be to your humanness versus just a straight machine type of environment. So not only are these things good for humans to eat, but they're also good because they keep us thinking about being a human as well.
3: But what happens if they get so attached to their fish knots that when they hatch into fish, they can't eat them? Will their loneliness overcome their hunger?
0: Obviously, Glinda wants more than fish food and companionship from the fish knots.
2: I want stemness out of it. I want to get stu- student teams working that have never worked together before, like biology and engineer, or fish people and engineers, and art and architect students and engineers. And then, lastly, I want to understand the science part of of how you handle these technology to 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 explore. Where I have problems that people want to have a colony, or they want to take over another planet, or they want to do you know some gravest things they've done on this world somewhere else. That's what I don't really like, I, and I'm, I would not be in favor of that. But but I am in favor of people growing what they need to grow because I can see that helping our our home planet. What I don't see helping our home planet again, this is just me and my soapbox. This is not, you know, reflection of, of the university or NASA. It's just myself because I have a brain to think. Is that I don't agree in taking over another another colony or another civilization, another place. We've had many examples of that on our own planet, sure, and it hasn't worked out so well for the native people and native plants and native animals many times, and I don't think it's going to work out again on some other planet, I don't think.
3: Whether it is in space or down here in Salt Lake City, Our city's prominent and creative engineers seem to be keen on sealing up food in vacuum-sealed balloon-like bags and making something tasty.
4: My name is Michael Thomas Petralia, and I'm the Education Programs Coordinator here at the Leonardo. Sous vide is a French term for under-vacuum, and it's a cooking technique where we use a constant-temperature water bath or water oven to prepare our food and get it to the perfect
2: temperature. They'll probably make some really good space food, by the way. Then We're trying to grow space food with these fish, so... It is an if, but when men and women travel through our solar system, they're not going to be able to pack all their peanut butter and sandwiches in a backpack and live for years it'll take on a, on a mission. They're going to have to learn to live off the land, and that's what this is about. Could we take uh, water and fish and plants and grow what we need for a colony to grow food and move on to explore?
3: Now imagine submerging that bag of fish eggs into a pot of boiling water. It's been said that if Michael Petralia lived a hundred years ago, he'd be an inventor. A thousand years ago, and he'd be a wizard.
4: There are magical things all the time. I mean, magic is just a, a set of technology so advanced that we don't understand it. And we kind of, in this point, our lives feel like we can understand everything. So we've lost that sense of magic. We've lost that sense of mysticalness. But it's still very much there. There's the magic of reality and... I'd love to be a wizard.
3: I couldn't decide whether this articulate, thick-bearded 20-something, wearing jeans tucked into white high-tops, was more scientist or artist, making him the perfect fit for the Leonardo, an art, science, and technology museum in downtown Salt Lake City, where Petralia works.
4: So art and science have been my, my passions throughout my whole life. There's always this natural overlap between the arts and the sciences, and I feel like that's one of the roles that art plays is allowing us to express really complex ideas very quickly, very easily.
3: Michael Petralia has done a lot in his short lifetime, including attending Harvard University's School of Engineering, where he studied soft mechanism design principles. He was also a teaching fellow for a general education course called Science and Cooking from Haute Cuisine to Soft Matter Science, with lectures called things like The Science of Paella, or Working with Modern Thickeners, the main faces of chocolate and lip smack in science, crystals, emulsions, foams, and pink vanilla cupcakes.
4: Food is our, like our common denominator. Everybody eats, and everybody needs to prepare food in order to eat. So it's got this excellent structure to hang science onto. People understand how jello works. They just don't know what's going on on a microscopic level. So we take their everyday experiences, their observations, the things that they know, and then we just fill in the gaps and say, here's how this works.
3: Petralia was also a Ph.D. candidate at Harvard Microrobotics, working on a project that probably would have impressed Leonardo da Vinci.
4: We were doing things that were like human muscle and systems that you could stretch to 10 times original size and would still perform. Same way we can squish muscle and it still works. Um, And it was very quickly went from a engineering problem to material science question, to a chemistry question, to a bio-inspired question, to a mathematics question, and we were just intersecting all of these huge topics. Um, and then I, in I guess going down the rabbit hole further and further, realized that we don't have the engineering principles to work in the soft mechanical systems, to work in that space. So I was working on numerical models and, and computer simulations for predicting what would happen in these structures. I stepped away from it.
3: Was it so esoteric and engrossing that you wanted another facet of life is that why uh, you moved to Salt Lake City
4: <laughs> I think life just happened this computer program and all these things that were completely necessary in my opinion to the pushing forward of this research were not the things that I actually liked to do they were things that I felt needed to be done mm-hmm. and I still feel they need to be done but I wasn't in a position to to get them done without being the person doing them yeah um so I just stepped out and started to pursue more artistic things and started to travel a bit and just kind of see the world. And I figured I would always go back to that at some point in the future when I had the right conversation with the right people. And you know, every six months or so I'd pick up my research and kind of think about it a bit more and go, okay, still a lot of open questions, still got a lot to figure out. It so takes things. a lot of
3: guts to step away and be okay with stepping away. Yeah,
4: it was a, an interesting process for sure. So it's not easy to walk away from Harvard.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Was there a lot of resistance when you were packing your bags?
4: Um, More from people around me than myself, but yeah, it's an interesting process.
3: (laughs) Petrelli decided to travel and landed in Italy, where he was inspired by the art side of cooking.
4: Traveled up and down there learned cooking from people who don't care about science, which was wonderful to see that side of it. I traveled across, back and forth across the country with a band. I was in a van for a while just selling merch for a couple friends of mine. Uh, that's actually how I found Salt Lake City. Just, you know, stopped in one night I was like, Salt Lake City is pretty cool. After Italy, I wouldn't think I could <laughs> compare. Well, there was a, there was a cute blonde girl. <laughs> I've been writing a lot lately, so guitar finally took that to place in my life where ah, I can be creative on this instrument. i um, getting the chops for this.
3: This is a really old guitar. Mm
4: -hmm. Uh, This is a guitar from the 60s. So I just Googled science museum in Salt Lake City, and the Leonardo popped up.
0: We have garlic, we have green onions, we have tomatoes, we have peppers, we have bacon, we have herbs. So what you can do is come on up, open up your Ziploc bag of um, eggs, you can add your components, and then we'll have... Events like this sous vide workshop where participants cook up a meal in a bag fit for space travel. Our one You're way the Leonardo the is engaging the community, according to Leonardo's spokesperson, Lisa Davis. This is a place where you can rediscover all of those places of wonder that you lived in as a child, and you get to do it, sometimes for the very first time. they are the eggs. Look at how pretty they are. I love it. Happy customers.
3: They are so pretty. The texture is so cool. <laughs> Can you state your name?
1: Brighton
4: Sampson.
3: How are the eggs going down?
4: These, these are, without hyperbole, the best scrambled eggs I've ever eaten. I'm not I'm not just saying that. It's almost upsetting how good these are. <laughs> and so what are the it's ingredients? It's like staring at the sun. I went a little simple with mine, just cheese and bacon
3: you think that the, the actual cooking technique is what's.?
1: It has to be. Because there's no other. Exercises. Rock and roll. Yeah. <laughs> you
0: know, regardless of your age, your experience, your your claimed interest or expertise area or not interest and I'm not good at, we are about blowing those away completely and getting you back to that Essential human curiosity, and I
3: just think it's it's so exciting. It looks like the demographic too is quite diverse.
0: It is. I think. I mean, we have. Okay, my daughter. I'm gonna, you know, claim her here. She is almost, almost 13, and I think she may be the youngest participant. But she loves food and she loves molecular gastronomy. My name's Gracie.
3: What do you know about that at 13 years old?
0: Well, I watch a lot of videos about molecular gastronomy, and um, I have a molecular gastronomy kit that she gave me. And so, I have the chemicals to make a couple of things. Like, what I've made so far is, it's almost like fruit caviar. And so it's like, you use juice and you combine it with the chemicals, um, and then you drop it into a water chemical bath, um, and it forms little pearls filled with the juice. So. And then, do they burst in your mouth or
3: something? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, what school do you go to? I go to Clayton Middle School. Yeah. And um, what's your favorite subject?
0: Probably language arts. Yes. Can you say why, for any reason? I,
3: I just really like my teacher. Yeah, that's usually what yeah. it is.
0: At the Leonardo. Michael Petrelia is using his engineering skills to inspire and empower teenagers. In June, Petrelia is teaching what he calls a three-day innovation collaborative, where high school students turn ideas into real solutions.
4: It's all based on the students, so we're getting uh, experts from creativity fields, from industry, from political places. We're getting as many different types of people in the room together. Everyone's rolling up their sleeves and working together to brainstorm What's wrong with the world? What are the problems? What hurts? Uh, There's this philosophy at Olin College about when you're thinking about an engineering problem, always go back to what hurts, what hurts, what hurts, because we want to make sure we're solving a problem and we're not just engineering for the sake of engineering. So I really stress that, you know, what hurts, what are we doing? Then after they kind of tackle this uh, problem identification period, the students are going to come together in small groups and propose their solution, their project that can change the world, that can fix this thing that hurts.
3: If you were recruited as a teenager, or as a—that's who you are now. How old are you? Twenty-eight. What would you choose as your project, May? What hurts you, I guess?
4: Oh goodness gracious! That's—I should answer that question because I'm going to make the students answer it right at this current moment. It's this mind riot project. I've always been an educator of sorts. Uh, I love to explain science and technology to people and as I've gotten older I've kind of realized that the science scientific perspective is again this one view of the world and there are many views so I like to to educate people on how to be happier than they are and uh, if I had to pick my project it would be some way to get people to slow down and just start paying attention to their lives.
0: Like Michael Petrelia, Ed Galindo sees the value of bringing out the art and the science, keeping an open mind and blending multiple perspectives. Galindo's fish knots are scheduled for takeoff in their capsule modeled after the Apollo spacecraft this weekend. We will check in with the two artsy engineers soon to find out the results of their projects. Science Questions is produced by Sherry Quinn, Susie Montgomery, and Elaine Taylor. Thank you for listening.
4: I'd like love to. Jeez. I got my flannel shirt and my four button
2: handleys, my DVs.
4: I got my Levi's, they are fine.